was just in Lisbon writing the first draft of my new book when I noticed a Facebook ad uh, announcing that Zen master Gen Poroshi will visit Mallorca. Mallorca, that is a little Spanish island and normally the place where I live. So I asked him if he would be interested in making an interview with me. And he was, so I booked a flight and we met yesterday and we had a wonderful and um, honest and very, very interesting conversation about lots of stuff. For example, what being Zen master means now and then, what, what it means to owning guilt and owning innocence. Of course, we talked a lot about uh, the big mind process also. I think this is one of the best podcasts I'd, I've done so far, so I would be happy if you check it out. We did this outside, so I think one or two times you will hear a helicopter passing by, but this is just a couple of seconds and I hope you don't mind. So enjoy this one. My name is Tom Amark. Um, I wish you all the best. I hope you tune in next time. It's a little bit touristic here. Yeah, it's very touristic, but I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, sometimes it's a little bit like Pleasure Island. Yeah. You know, well, I lived in Maui. Okay. Mm -hmm. Six years. Six okay. seven years. So it's totally tourist. Okay. It's a lot like Maui. Mm -hmm. You know. But but the, the good thing is you sometimes you can use it to zone out because it's so superficial. Right. It's it's easy to concentrate on the things that are that's, important. That's, that's true. So, yeah. And yeah. Well I found Maui I mean, most of the latest book, Spitting Out the Bones, was written in Maui. Oh really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Probably seventy percent of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the the book you mentioned, Big Heart, Big Mind, was entirely written in Maui many years ago, I don't know what year, two thousand seven or eight. Um, in nine or ten days. Oh really? Yeah. And I was there with my children. Uh, and they were, you know, very uh, comfortable being on their own. Yes. So I had nothing to do, <laughs> so I wrote a book. <laughs> wow! Well, so you just you just uh, came from Maui before this circle. No, I moved out of Maui two years ago. Oh. exactly two years ago. Uh, sold the place two years ago, June, and I've been back since then a couple times. Okay, both uh, December's and January of uh, this past year and the year before. So the, the book, The Spitting Out the Bones, is a little bit older already? Or? Well, it only got published September, okay? But it was uh, six years in the making. Okay. I started it in 2011, February, January, February, 2011, and completed it September. In fact, the last chapter was written uh, in Long Beach just about a year ago when I moved into uh, Long Beach uh, House. I'm originally from Long Beach. Okay. I wasn't born there, but originally from Long Beach. And when I started this whole spiritual quest, was 1971, and I was one block away. I was on Ocean Boulevard. Now I moved 45 years later to oh, first, really? first Street. A uh, full cycle then you came Full cycle. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was interesting because when I left Long Beach in 1971, it was also June, July, um, I thought I was leaving for good, okay. forever. Uh, 
And 45 years later, the end of June, 1st of July, I returned to Long Beach, realizing I was just on one big trip. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Mm -hmm. So it was more like a trip than a journey. So what, what motivated you to start that, that quest, that journey in the first place? Well, I was a lifeguard and a school teacher in Long Beach, and in February of 71, I was having some problems in my relationship, and I was feeling very claustrophobic, um, quite, uh, yeah, squeezed. Uh, I didn't have the freedom I was looking for, so I went out to the desert with two friends. Um, and one, the woman was a new friend, that was his relationship, but he was a, one of my oldest friends since high school. So we went out to the desert and they took a hike uh, to explore the desert. And I walked up... One, one of those hikes in the desert? Yeah, or? one of those hikes in the <laughs> desert. <laughs> and I went up to a mountain uh, and sitting there on a mountaintop, I was looking out across the desert and I could see my... Uh, Westvalia, my Volkswagen, and um, I was thinking, the question came up, where's home? And I don't know where, why it came up, but it came up, where's home? Because I'm looking at home for the next few days, yeah. but home was really back in Long Beach, okay. on, on Ocean Boulevard. And then I had this amazing experience where everything dropped off and I just became one with the cosmos, one with the universe and uh, realized I'm always home. What, was it like enhanced with, with some psychedelics or well, what, what, was it like a spontaneous? You could say so but it was really quite spontaneous. Mm. I had done a lot of LSD at that time, a lot of uh, different things like mesca stuff like that. But in this particular time, the three of us divided one tab. That's all that we had. So I don't think it was so much the acid as it was sitting there alone in the desert. But yes, you could say it was influenced mm. by the LSD. But I had done so much before that, mm. you know, as much as maybe four or five hits in a weekend. So I don't know how much, I really to this day don't know, 46 years later, how much was enhanced. But whatever it was, turned my whole life around because they didn't have the same experience they had taken their, and they just had a pleasant day but for me it was life uh, altering so you didn't expect that to be happen or? no hmm. no of course not no I mean in all the LSD and all the mescaline and all those trips I had uh, they were more psychedelic this was more transformative oh interesting this was somehow body mind just dropped off And I think it was because I was sitting. I wasn't meditating. I was just sitting alone in the desert. And somehow that allowed it to be what it was. Uh, and from that day on, I began sitting meditation or zazen. It reminds me a little bit of Messiah Eliade, the anthropologist um, who wrote extensive about shamanism and that the mm -hmm. spontaneous... Um, realization mm -hmm. or illumination for lack of a better word right, right. of the student is in, in those archaic societies is valued more than somebody who practiced for a long time to get to that state uh -huh. so so it's like this when, when this spontaneous uh -huh. realization occurs yeah. it's it's valued it's it's viewed as something more valuable and more profound in a way well what was unique for me is I began 
that day my spiritual quest not one day before so for me I started from an awakened experience which mm. is very different what I've experienced now over these years most people start spiritual search and are seeking that kind of opening kind of awakening for me it began with that awakening and I think why I kind of created or discovered the big mind process was from that experience I knew that you don't need to practice meditation to have an awakening. Most people think you practice meditation in order to awaken or to enlighten. But I knew that that potential is within every one of us. Mm. And all there has to be is a 180 degree shift. Because that's what happened. It was like I had been facing in one direction, going full throttle, you know, 180 miles an hour or, or kilometers an hour. And all of a sudden, I found myself completely the opposite direction. I was going in the direction in my life, you know, I was a competitive swimmer and water polo player. And I was working out up until 70, no, 60, 66, I think it was. Uh, I was working out for the Olympics. Oh, really? 67, 67. Yeah, for the 68 Olympics. Wow. In Montreal, no? I was in Mexico. Oh, okay. Mexico mm -hmm. City. Anyways, I had to leave the workouts because I had a full-time job and I was going to USC uh, graduate school, so I had to quit. But I was of that caliber of seeking to be the greatest, the greatest swimmer, the greatest water polo player. You know, it was all about being great and about making money and, you know, all the normal things. And that experience turned me completely around. I saw the emptiness of all that. And what I saw, the only thing of real meaning was serving others and continuing to clarify. So you weren't ex exactly seeking that I experience? Wasn't, I mm. wasn't seeking anything. Mm. No, I mean, I was just out there getting away from uh, my relationship, so to speak, and getting some space for my teaching job. I took mm. three days off, I took a Friday off. I just had to get away. We were having tension, you know, in the relationship, and I felt trapped. I just needed to get out into space. So it wasn't anything about seeking any kind of awakening. It was about just seeking space. Mm. <laughs> you know? would, you, would you say that that, that uh, laid also the seed for, for the big mind process? But Because what Absolutely. you are describing... That's what I'm saying. Yeah, mm. exactly. That mm. laid the seed for the big mind process. Mm. Way back in February 71. Because of realizing that it doesn't take any pursuit or seeking or uh, practice to awaken. That it's available to everybody at any time, at any moment. So, but then you turn to Buddhism. Yeah, so what happened was, when my friends came back uh, that evening, uh, I told them something happened. I don't know what it was. I, it might be what you call a mystical experience. I, I had no name for it. I hadn't studied any Buddhism. I hadn't studied Zen. I had heard Zen mentioned once before, about six months earlier, from a friend of mine. Actually, I went over to buy a bunch of acid from him. <laughs> 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 and he had two books uh, on the floor, uh, both with the name Zen in them. One was by Alan Watts and one was by D.T. Suzuki. Okay. And uh, 
I said, well, what's that? And he said something very classic. He's now a, a sensei. He might even be a Roshi by now. Um, he said to me, I've been studying Zen, and I believe it's where Western science, Western religion, Western philosophy, Western psychology are all headed towards Zen. Okay. So that kind of stuck in my mind. Wow. Profound shit, you know. Then this fellow, who was my good friend also, uh, out in the desert, when I told him what happened, yeah. he said, you had a Zen experience. Now, I put the two together, mystical Zen experience. And when I was talking, he said, you sound like a Zen Roshi or Zen master. And, you know, I never heard of it. So he gave me, when we got back to Santa Barbara, where he was living, I was living in Long Beach. We got back to Santa Barbara, he gave me Siddhartha by Hesse. Wonderful book. Wonderful book. And so I read that, and then I began reading everything on Zen I could get my hands on. All At that time, there wasn't that much. There was uh, Reps, uh, what's it called, uh, Paul Reps. And, yeah, there were just a few authors on Zen, Alan Watts, D.T. Suzuki, um, yeah, not much. Maybe there's half a, a dozen books. There's a art, art of motorcycle. No, art of no, art, not art of motorcycle maintenance. That wasn't available yet. Uh, archery. Zen, yes, Zen exactly. Art, I, I've read this. I, I yeah. bought once a, a Kyoto bow, yeah. and I, 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 you know, and I read that book, and I found it so fascinating. Yeah. But no, what, what is the, the the guy's name? Um, that that's um, not Paul Reps. Uh, it'll come to me. I, I think it's a German one. Yes, I believe mm. it is. Yes, mm. a lot of Germans in that time. Mm. You know, um, so at, at that point, uh, he said, you, "You sound like a Zen master." So that really got me going mm. to looking about Buddhism, Jung, uh, because he was a Jungian. This, this fellow was a PhD in psychology and a Jungian. And so I started reading Carl Jung, that's a German. He's German, right, or Austrian? I think he's German. German, yeah, I believe so. Uh, and um, D.T. Suzuki, and everything I could get my hands on, uh, the biography of Yogi, you yeah. know, and all that. And within a few months, I went off into the mountains, mm. and I lived as a hermit for a year, uh, deep in the mountains, five-mile walk into the mountains. Okay. Yeah. And I lived there from uh, September to June. I didn't see a soul until December, Christmas. A cowboy rides up on his horse. They said, you seen any stray doggies, cattle, around? And I said, no, I haven't. He tips his hat and says, uh, thank you. And rides on. I go, wait, wait, wait. I haven't seen a human being in four months. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me. <laughs> and he just rode off. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> I mean, it was four months before I saw another soul. Okay. So, was kind of, uh, so you were practicing by your own, and, yeah. and you're, you're trying to, con by, by the practices you read in the, those books, or did yeah. you have any uh, instruction? That's uh, it. I hmm. hadn't had any instruction. Um, I actually stopped off before I got to the cabin. I was hitchhiking down from Canada. I hitchhiked from California up through Utah and Montana, Wyoming, went up to Canada, did a 50-mile hike uh, over from Glacier National Park to Waterland Canyon, 
um, in Canada. I think it's Waterton. And then went up to Banff and Jasper and then over to Vancouver. Oh. Went to Vancouver Island. And then I stayed there for a while, most of the summer. And then I came back down and I, I went to this... Uh, I met a guy, picked me up hitchhiking. I was hitchhiking. And he attended the Berkeley Zendo. And he was living in a commune in Berkeley. So he invited me to come to the Berkeley Zendo with Mel Weitzman, now Mel Weitzman Roshi. And so I went twice, and he invited me, Mel invited me to come meet Suzuki Roshi, who was giving a, a session at Tassajara. So what, what is this session? Session is a one-week retreat. Okay. Okay. At least at that time it was one week. Intensive retreat. So I was all planned and uh, ready to go, but then he said, well, I'm sorry, but the woman who got sick, and that's whose place you were taking in the car, is feeling better now, and she's going to come to the retreat, so you can't come. Mm -hmm. So I never met Suzuki Roshi, but I did go to that zendo before going to the mountains, but I never had any real formal instruction until March of 72, after I'd been there since September of 71. I went to LA and I met Maizumi Roshi and at that time Tetsugan Glassman, now Bernie Roshi. And my other Bernie Glassman? Yeah, Bernie the, Glassman. The guy who the, the Roshi who, who hangs out with Jeff Bridges, is that? Yeah, that's yeah. the same. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he's my older brother. And he gave beginning instruction to me mm -hmm. in uh, 72 in March. And I met Kori Roshi, that was one of three of Maizumi Roshi's teachers. He had Kori Roshi, was one, Yasutani Roshi was another, and uh, Bayan Hakujin Daiosho was another. They had three teachers and masters. So, uh, I But what, what was your motivation at that point? I mean, you just, you wanted to go in, but you had this realization. So, and then what, what was the, the process? Well, uh, internally? Two things. Two things. One was I really loved sitting alone in, in the mountains and being quiet. In fact, I absolutely found it necessary to be alone. It was like a craving, like you would crave water if you were in the desert for days. It was like I, I just craved being alone. And so I spent that whole year pretty much in isolation. So that was part of the drive this need to be alone and to go deeper and to clarify more. And then also, what I found around, I think, February or March of 72, um, just before I went to the Zen Center in March, so it must have been February, I wanted to share meditation with others. So I actually put up some signs down in San Luis Obispo. I was living in the mountains just north of that. And about 20 people started coming out and meditating with me. And so we'd sit <laughs> naked. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I never put in clothes there except for when it was cold. Mm. So, you know, hippie days. Right? <laughs> so we sat in a circle, 20 of us, men and women, all sitting naked. And uh, then we would play some music afterwards and drink some wine and just enjoy. And sometimes I would read from Suzuki Roshi's uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind to the group oh. and show them how to sit. So it's kind of like we had this group and we did yoga, somebody taught how, how yoga. How old were you at that time? 27 at that okay. point. Mm -hmm. This all started at 26, so I was about 27 mm -hmm. at that point. And um, yeah, 
uh, we just had a great time. We would go out on outings and we'd practice yoga and we'd do astrology and we'd sit meditations and meditation and massage each other. Oh, mm -hmm. <laughs> One of the guys was a massage teacher, you know, so <laughs> just great hippie days, you know. It was just really the life. I, I love I loved that year was probably until recently the happiest year of my entire life. Is that true? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Recently I'm happier all the time, but up to then there was about a 40-year period where I wasn't as happy doing traditional Zen. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel traditional Zen made me happy. Uh, it's only really in the last few years that I've found true happiness. But before that, it was more like obsessive, obsessive of, of helping people awaken, leading and conducting retreats and doing classes and workshops. It was, it was very motivated, almost by the same energy that motivated me in swimming and water in the spiritual. Exactly what Chogun Trumpa Rinpoche would call spiritual materialism. Yeah, you but know? but did you did you but did you realize uh, at what moment in life you were you were in? I mean, like, did you understand uh, on on which way you were, or was it just a craving, like a quest, like something you had to do, and and all that that understanding where you were at that place and time that came later later? No, I. I If you're talking about from the beginning or during the 40 years? No, no, just that, that moment where, which you describe as like a happy, happy year. It's like well, when, when you start. I was in a high. Mm. I was definitely on a high mm. from the awakening for just about exactly a year. In fact, it was a year and a month because it ended the moment I entered the Zen Center of Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> which was a year and a month later. Uh, I entered formal practice. That's not a good... <laughs> no, I know. And, uh, I don't recommend it. But uh, the moment I went into traditional practice... See, I was more like beat zen. You, you're familiar with those terms? Alan Watts talked about hip zen or beat zen. And, no, no. And square zen. Okay. I don't remember if he used beat zen or, or hip zen. But I was more hip or beat zen than I was square zen. And then I entered square zen. <laughs> And it's so much, it's very Japanese, of course. Okay. And if you've ever seen, like, uh, Memoirs of a Geisha, did you ever see that movie? Oh, well, it, uh, mm? Yeah, well, the same training. All Japanese arts are basically the same kind of discipline and training. It's totally intense, and you give your life to it. Your whole life becomes whatever the martial arts, whatever the the Zen training, the Geisha training, whatever it might be, music training, you'd give everything to the sword. So the first thing I heard at the Zen Center was, you must kill yourself on your cushion. You must die on your zafu. <laughs> so that kind of intensity, and all of a sudden I was had been living that year in the mountains, very quiet, very peaceful, very happy, very relaxed. And I get to the Zen Center, <laughs> and I'm told I gotta kill myself, I gotta die, Yeah. you know? And I felt resistance come up. And there was all of a sudden a kind of conflict, a war in me between not wanting to die and hearing that I must die. They would say the self must die, kill the ego, you know? And they used ego and self interchangeably. I don't do, but they did it at that time. And they said, you must kill yourself. 
kill your ego, you know, die on your cushion. And so here I am, 27 years old, and I go, I don't want to die. (laughs) (laughs) But I had felt like I had had numerous death experiences from that February on. I don't know, I lost count how many. And I went to see Kori Roshi, that was, he was teaching. Mizumi Roshi was a sensei at that point. Became a Roshi, a Zen master, at the end of that retreat. Mm-hmm. But he had been studying with Kori Roshi since Mizumi Roshi at that point, since he was 18. So he had gone to study and live with him. And he was now 42, so he'd been studying there a long time. Mm-hmm. And he became a Roshi. And I went to see Kori Roshi, and he said, uh, count your breaths. And I had been doing what I call shikantaza, which is just sitting. And so I would sit in the, by the cabin in the mountains next to a stream, and I'd sit there actually just sitting, not concentrating on anything, not trying to tame my mind or control anything. And then I'm taught you must count your breath from one to ten and you must not lose count. And, you, you know, and all of a sudden it became very vigorous, disciplined, uh, kind of meditation mm. and it just fell off but I listened to the teacher and I tried and then after a few days he put me on the koan move and he said you can work on this koan move and the koan goes something like this a monk ass master Joshu does a, a problem no no go ahead does a dog have a nature and Joshu answered, Mu. Now, originally it was Chinese, Joshu was Chinese, and the answer was Wu. Okay? I don't know if it has anything to do with the dog going Wu or what, but it means nothing, non, no, negation. That's what it means, Mu or Wu. So he gave me this koan. And I went back to my cushion, and I sat for another day on it. And then I felt I really had passed move way back. And I said, it's me. And he said, no. And so I had to keep working on it. And then the fourth day, I think it was, it was either the third or fourth day, I'm working in the garden with my Zumi sensei at that point. And we were building rock gardens, Japanese rock gardens, uh, throughout the two properties that we owned, and, or they owned at the time. And since I was very strong at that point, I was lifting a lot of weight, almost 200 kilos of bench press, you know, uh, he had me help him move these big rocks, okay. these big boulders. So, we're placing in one place or another, and then he'd step back and he'd look at it and he'd say, uh, no, 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 move it over there. So I'd go and take this big boulder, weighing a couple hundred pounds, and I'd move it over there. And then he'd step back and he'd look at it, no, 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 put it back where it was, you know. And we did this back and forth. Well, I hadn't heard at that point of the story of Milarepa and his teacher Marpa, the Tibetan story, but apparently the story goes something very similar. So Marpa told Milarepa, to build him a stupa. Okay. Okay. So he went out and he spent weeks building this stupa, very high stupa. And then Marcus said, Why did you build it over there? I want it over here. <laughs> so he had to take it apart, <laughs> stone by stone, and move it over here. And then Marco would look at it, 
few days later or a week later, he said, what are you doing? This is stupid. should be over there, back to the original. I went back and forth. That's what he was doing with me, uh, with these stones, except it was a lot less work mm. <laughs> than building a stupa. But um, at one point, I decided to quit the session. Okay. Because I felt I had more peace, more happiness, living alone in the mountains than I was doing this retreat in the middle of Los Angeles. And I felt it wasn't Zen, because everything I had read pretty much was D.T. Suzuki at the time and Suzuki Roshi. And D.T. Suzuki talks that Zen doesn't have any ritual, there's no bowing, it's, it's all sitting, sitting, you know, and koans. And we were doing all these prostrations, these full bows and chanting, and it just felt full of ritual. And I said to Mizumi Roshi during the work period while I was helping him with the rocks, I had this spade in my hand, a little shovel, you know. And I said, I'm going to quit Sashin after lunch. And he says, I don't want you to leave. Mm-hmm. I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving after lunch. He said, I don't want you to go. He said it three times, and it just moved me. It touched my heart. Mm-hmm. It still moves me. Because nobody had been so beautifully direct with me. He didn't say, you shouldn't go, you mustn't go, it's against the rules to go. He said, I don't want you to leave. And so, it, it really, yeah, it really moved me. He said, why are you leaving? And I said, this is not Zen. And he looks at me. <laughs> I'm telling you, Zen <laughs> Two days he's going to give an Inca. Mm. Final seal of approval. And I say, this is not Zen. Inca is the final, final seal, seal of, of approval. Mm. Yeah. And I said, he said, this is, I said, this is not Zen. He says, what is Zen? And I had this spade in my hand and I, jammed it down into the saw and I said, just this! <laughs> <laughs> and he looks at me like with wide eyes and he says, your Zen eye is only partially open. Which was true. Only partially mm. open. But let, let me just ask, what, what does it entitle to be like a, a Inca Zen master at that time? At that, what does it mean to be that? What, what is that state of mind Not just the social role, but the, the state of mind of a Zen master at that time. Well, at that time, mm. it meant uh, very clear, having had some kind of daikensho we call great enlightenment, and having passed all the koans, which mm. there were a lot of koans. In those days, uh, he did two traditions, about 700 in one tradition and 400 koans in the other. Wow. I don't think it means the same thing today. Where's the difference? Well, I think we've slackened. I think we've backed off on uh, the criteria of clarity that is needed to be uh, Inca, to receive Inca. Oh, mm-hmm. But it's it still, watered, it's down, still mean. watered down. Mm-hmm. It's still difficult. I mean, I have how many people? Seven that I've given Inca to? I think seven, could be eight, maybe eight. Uh, out of thousands of students, you know, so it's still difficult. Would you, would you mind to, to elaborate? Uh, what does it mean you gave Inca to somebody else? It means made them a Zen master, a Roshi. 
But they had gone through the ranks they, and they, they had, gone they had through, gone they'd been already senseis. Many of them, I made senseis uh, mm. of those eight or so. It's like an ordination or something. Well, it's more than that. It's a confirmation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Confirming that they are ready to be an independent teacher. Mm. That they're on their own and they're independent. And that their uh, awakening or their clarity is good enough. But as I say, I think it's watered down. Uh, so, but they still go to the, the, the cones today, through the cones? Most of them, at that point, should have finished cones. Okay. But not all of them have, but most of them should have. Okay. Yeah. I, I can't think of anybody who hasn't, but I'm sure there's others that haven't. So, and this is there, is, is there a, a concrete definition of what enlightenment is? No, you're not going to find anything concrete. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's nothing concrete. Uh, I know both Bernie Roshi and myself at some point felt disappointed that Maizumi Roshi uh, slackened, or, or what's the word you use, watered down? Mm -hmm. Watered down his criteria too, for not just Inca, because Inca he kept it, but for Dharma Transmission, which is called Shiho Dharma Transmission. So I had Shiho in 1980 and Inca in 1996. Mm. Uh, Bernie had Shiho in 1977 and Inca in 1995. So you can see the difference between Transmission or Shiho and Inca. It's still another 15 years or so. How, how do you explain that? that well, Shiho, Shiho is that you've become one mind with the teacher, that's the definition. You become one with the, te the mind of the teacher and the lineage. So you embody the lineage. Uh, and you receive the ceremony of transmission, or shiho, and that means that uh, you are now a lineage holder in the line of Shakyamuni Buddha. So I'm like the 81st, Bernie's 81st, my successors are 82. Okay. successors are 82nd. Yeah. And their successors 83 and so on. So a direct line. But there's a huge difference between transmission of Shiho and Inca because one means that now I would call it you're a mature teacher versus an immature. So like when I received Shiho in 1980, I was 35, I think, something like that. Uh, 35 or 36. The difference between that and 96, 1996, where I don't know, I was in my 50s. That's a huge growth time, you know. So there's a maturity that comes. Uh, Inca, you're a more mature teacher, and I feel that it takes in just about every endeavor. If you're a engineer, if you're a doctor, a surgeon, if you're a writer. It takes you about 14, 15, 16 years to become, yeah, to master it, you know, to master something. So I would say that's what it means, the difference between being a teacher and a master. Now, it means other things, too. I believe that a master uh, is capable, not always does it happen, but is capable of transmitting um, the Dharma, uh, not just by teaching but energy-wise, or, or in a way through uh, being together with someone. Yeah. Whereas a teacher 
almost is just teaching, you know, sharing knowledge or information, whereas a master is doing more. It's a, there's really a transmission going on. There's a transformation happening. Okay. Uh, uh, whereas in teaching, that's not necessarily true. So to me, a master is the embodiment is more complete. Embodiment mm. is more complete. Yeah. So to me, a master is really a very mature teacher, therefore qualified to be called a master. Okay, but um, you're still say saying that to be like a like an Inca, like a master, um, doesn't require today what it did require. I'm still saying that. 20, 25 years ago? More, no, more like 40 years ago. Okay. So and why, why do you think that? Is it because of the, the, the New Age movement yeah, and the, the inflation and... Everything. Mm. Like for my, for example, for myself, um, I feel there has been a tremendous pressure on us first generation teachers to transmit because there were so few teachers. When I became uh, a sensei, 1981 There are just millions of teachers out there. Yeah, yeah. And so there isn't the demand, the supply and demand. So we felt a tremendous pressure to pass on the lineage probably too quickly. Mm. That's my own opinion. Yes. I, I think this is very interesting because, I mean, you, you, you talked about the nu numerous experiences of die in a way yeah. to be reborn. And as I said, this is like a com um, common topic in shamanism. In, in the uh, wisdom traditions, All of them, yeah. but but today it's not about that anymore. You know, it's like about this process. Okay, th there has to transform something very deeply inside of you. You have to go into that abyss to, to confront something you right. you don't want to confront. Of course. So, but but nobody like w when when you observe our, our spiritual landscape, it's not about that anymore. It's it's more about wellness and exactly. Very well said, by the way, and it, it is a shame, it is a shame, but mm. it's part of the westernization, I don't think we could have avoided it. Mm. I remember saying 30 years ago that with the westernization, at that point I called it more Americanization, because I wasn't yet in Europe uh, but prior to 82, so I saw it more as Americanization, that there's going to be certain amount of negative consequences you know, the spiritual marketplace kind of mentality with the spirituality. Uh, and it certainly has evolved that way. Mm. Uh, I don't think we could have avoided it. Um, maybe. I doubt it. it, it I, I so think Ram Dass had something to do with it, because, like, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, he is one of the first books I read, too, <laughs> Back in the Mountains, <laughs> Be Here Now. You know, uh, I've, I've been over to see him a few times on Maui. You know, oh, he's yeah? lived on Maui. Wow. Well, mm. uh, he still does, but uh, I don't think he can come off, actually, because mm. of his health. Mm. But, uh, yeah. What is he, 90, what, 92? No, I don't think so. No? I don't think he's that old. I think he's in his 80s. Mm. But, you know, he's been paralyzed. 
Yeah. Uh, the way it's down. No, I had a podcast with the son of Timothy Leary. And oh, really? Yes, and, and with Zach. And, and um, he's You're still in contact with him. Yeah, well, I am too. Uh, Bernie more than I am. Mm. But, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you could blame <laughs> Rob Dossie, that's all to do with it. But so did a lot of people, uh, Alan Watts, mm. you know, very much popularized mm. uh, Eastern, particularly Zen tradition. But coming back to you, so you you entered the, the traditional uh, Zen way, mm -hmm. to, to, to say it in this way, mm -hmm. and you didn't felt quite happy because of that um, strong and rigid way discipline. of discipline is that I think that's a fair way to say it I didn't realize I wasn't happy mm -hmm. until I was happy <laughs> mm -hmm. you know it's like you don't know where you've been until you're no longer there mm -hmm. you know it's like looking back and saying wow I just spent kind of 40 years uh, under a lot of pressure mm -hmm. feeling a lot of Uh, strain, a lot of stress, a lot of pressure for transmitting the Dharma. And in the last six years, uh, that has fallen away because of my own fall from, uh, from where I was before January 2011. And, you know, at that time when I would do a retreat, three, four hundred people would be there. Now I'm lucky to get 30, 40 people, you know. Uh, and there was a tremendous pressure. And I was, I had this Zen Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. You know, we had all these monks and, and um, we had residents. And we were running a very high cost operation that took me a lot of energy to keep up the, the income yeah. there. Um, that's all off my shoulders now which has allowed me to relax. Mm. And I found what I've discovered, not only is practice important, but liberation or freedom brings about happiness. You can't be happy until you're free. And as long as you're not free, and as long as you're in, in kind of enchained or in, enthralled in all these kinds of, I don't know the right word, in all these requirements that you have to do and keep up, all this stuff, yeah. you know, how can you be relaxed and happy? So to me, relaxation, liberation, freedom, and happiness all go together. So you mean that th those events from 2011 helped you in a way to... Absolutely. To, to Free myself up. <laughs> yeah, it, mm. it allowed me to find myself, you could say, again. Mm. Because I think, like so many of us, I got caught up in the tradition. I can give you an ex uh, a kind of example. We're not, we won't do it as a big mind. I'll just kind of talk you through it. Okay. okay? So if you imagine, and our listeners can imagine, if you're practicing Zen, well, you could say that the challenge is to become Zen, mm -hmm. to become one with Zen, so to embody Zen. So imagine that you feel you're not embodying Zen, and what it takes to embody it, to become one with it, to, to live it moment to moment. Well, you can see it probably takes a lot of effort, a lot of work, a lot of discipline, and so on. So you're coming from a place where you feel somehow incomplete, 
not yet one with Zen, not yet Zen, not fully embodying it, and you work very hard at meditation and various rituals and various practices to become it. Then imagine that now you become Zen. You totally embody Zen, you're one with Zen. Everything you do from moment, morning till night, moment to moment is all Zen. Picking up a glass is Zen. Looking at a person is Zen. Listening is Zen. Talking is Zen. Raking the, the grass is Zen. Watering the lawn is Zen. Cutting the, the mowing the lawn is mm. Zen. It's all Zen. Whatever you do from morning to night is nothing but Zen. At this point, I can say you're seriously stuck in Zen. You are, you've reached your goal. Mm. You're now Zen. You're Zen through and through. But you're not free from Zen yet. So now imagine being on the opposite side of the triangle. Imagine a triangle, being on the opposite end of this mm. triangle, and you're not Zen. But you're not, you're not okay with not being Zen because you're totally identified with Zen. So before, you were totally identified with self the ego structure or whatever you want to call it, the various selves, totally identified with the self, you know, and now you're no longer identified as self, you're now Zen, through and through. So you've lost one, one thing, you, you're using Zen uh, equivalently to, to big mind now? Or, or? Yeah, kind of. Kind of. But kind of, but I'm just really using Zen. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now you've dropped your identification mm. with the ego, and you're totally identified as Zen. And like for me, this is where I think I've been since 1986 until 2011. Kind of completely identified, maybe even all the way back to 71 mm. as Zen. Not realizing now I have a new identity that I'm stuck in. The identity of Zen. So what 2011 did was it was like, it just like a... Um, Spin-off. I was just shot out into outer space, like like a planet getting shot out, mm. you know, into the solar system. Uh, and I no longer was so identified with Zen or Zen teaching or Zen teachers, any of that tradition. And I didn't know who I was, because I certainly wasn't Dennis Merzel anymore. And for a long time I was Genpo, 1973, then I was Genpo Sensei, 1980, then I was Genpo Roshi, 1996, and now 2011, I don't know who I am. So I was doing some work with my mentor, Hal Stone, from, you know, sure. yeah, um, Boys Dialogue, and Hal said, well, let me speak to the 81st Patriarch. That's what I was since 1980. So I spoke as the 81st Patriarch, and I was very intimate with that one. I'm very close to that one. It was who I am, very empowered. So just just one moment for, for our listeners. So now voice dialogue and, and uh, the big mind process there, this Jungian idea of sub-personalities in a way, and you can address them and you can inhabit those voices, even though you sometimes don't know that you can. Exactly. So, Very just... Yes, completely. So, we completely owned the 81st Patreon, okay? And then he said to me, okay, 
I would like you to divorce, divorce the 81st patriarch. Oh, wait a minute. That's who I am. <laughs> yeah. How do I divorce myself? He said, I would like you to divorce 81st patriarch, and let me speak to that one that is not the 81st patriarch. And I was stunned. I was like, my God, I have no clue who I am. I mean, it brings up emotion still. This was, this was April of nineteen of two thousand eleven, April of two thousand eleven. So just a few. So months after the events of mm-hmm. yeah. And I'm going, wow. I don't know who this guy is. All I know is the eighty first patriarch, the Zen master. Well, I spent the next few months very lost. Um, sure, I can imagine. Very lost. I had no identity. I didn't know what to call myself. I didn't know who I was anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was a very beautiful, lonely time in my life from that April 22nd or 5th to probably July. I, I had no clue who I was. I, I mean, I was basically lost. People would ask me questions on Zen. What should I do? I don't know. I mean, I was just like, I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember a workshop during that period, right after April, in San, I think it was San Francisco, it might have been LA, LA. And every question they asked me, I said, I don't know. Now, it's true, I didn't know. But I wasn't just saying that. Mm. It wasn't like a, a Zen expression, I don't know. I mean, you know, we talk about don't know mine. I really didn't know. I was completely lost. And then Hal said, okay, I want you to give voice to this. So, okay, I, I gave voice, I gave it a name, Dennis, you know, it was my, you know, original name, but I didn't have a clue mm. who I was. It took a long time. It, rem- it reminds me of, of a saying of, of another wisdom tradition where it is said in order to to move on that the Well, that would be a, a, a Buddhist picture, but like you have to overcome the identification and the love with the infinite, yes, you know. That's and, right. And so, so in order to right. to to move on in a way, but you you, you strive all the um, all the time to 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 find this identification and and to not be yourself and and to be that exactly. And but at one point you have to let go of that, and this is like a, a, a more profound death of self. Yes. Because you fall in, into this abyss, ab- abyss <laughs> of not knowing who you are what you what, what you want to do um, and but but the uh, I don't know the, the cosmos the, the universe is moving forward and and <laughs> there's some life after that yeah. and this yeah you very well said again yeah I, I appreciate your clarity right yeah it's ascending the mountain and then having to descend hmm. at the ascent you're one with the cosmos you are embodiment of the buddha dharma i had my first fall in 94 and i felt like i fell out of my enlightenment how i descended what i didn't realize was the descending was to a very very big plateau that was still a couple thousand feet above sea level But it was so big, so vast, that I thought I was on sea level. And then the fall in 2011, which is 94 to 11, you know, whatever year, number of years those are, 
The second fall felt like now I'm finally at sea level, but mm. I had no idea there was more to fall. It was clueless. Mm. There's no way of knowing that. It's like what Trumper says, says, you know, the first time you, you fall, it's like falling. The second time, it's like a giant pancake falling out of the sky and hitting you on the head. <laughs> you didn't even know the pancake was up there. It just... Um, that fall was more devastating completely, mm. the 2011. So, what I realized I did is I didn't just divorce the 81st Patriarch and Paul Roche, I disowned them. And it took me quite a while to, in a way, uh, re embody him too. So if we look at the triangle, we've got over here the 81st Patriarch, and over here on the right side we have Dennis Merzel. At the apex, we have Dennis Gempo Merzel Roshi, <laughs> as Hal put it. Because then I began a process from that moment on, which took another five years, five and a half years to this day, to really uh, integrate, unify Dennis Brazel mm. and Gempo Roshi, uh, which means to be fully human and not just a Zen master and not just uh, an enlightened being, mm. but a human being, which I consider much more important mm. than an enlightened being is to be a simple human being. It brought back the importance of relational and relationships rather than just the transcendent and just being in the cosmos. Uh, for me, it was the most important and greatest event uh, in my life since 1971 was this fall. That's how important I rate it. Interesting. Yeah, and maybe the most important in my entire life. Of course, I wouldn't have been on the whole trip had it not been for that, mm -hmm. when we started this conversation, February 71. But the fall of 2011, I'm truly grateful for. Mm -hmm. It's like somebody who goes through cancer or near-death experience might, might say, I wouldn't like to ever do it again, but I'm certainly glad I did it. I went through it. So let's let, let just dwell on that for a moment and in and, and regard of sub-personalities and voice dialogue. So do you think that that those sub-personalities who came forward helped you in a way to attain a higher goal? I mean, it's, it's like what, what that scandal and that moment did, you know, to, to embrace that and to understand that maybe um, in the end it, it was necessary to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the way I see it is we're all different. We're all unique. And not everybody needs to have such a big fall to get there. But for me it was absolutely essential. Uh, I don't think I could have given up my identification with Zen, with being the 81st Patriarch, with being the Zen Master, with all that, had I not had that fall. Now, I know others who have had falls and great falls. It doesn't mean necessarily that we give up the identification with being a Master or a Bodhisattva or something like that. That doesn't always happen. But for me, it was like I had no choice. You know? Okay. Mm -hmm. And I, um, well, my my whole thing is always keep going. 
you know, keep clarifying, keep working on yourself. Uh, I think that's what I'm known for. Mm. You know, I don't just settle down someplace and say, okay, now I've achieved. Mm. It's all about continuing on. So for me, working on the sub-personalities of the other voices has been extremely important. And I would say... Because, because, because you worked on that model of the big mind process like 10 years before already. More no? than that. So, 99. So, so you already had like a, a basic conception of, of how that works, that whole thing. Absolutely, mm. yeah. So it was 12 years before 2011, mm. absolutely. I think if I was to say... My clarity prior to June of 99 and my clarity post-June of 99, it's like night and day. All the con work, all the Zen practice from 71 to 2000 to uh, 99. What, what happened, 99? What? That's when I came up with the Big Mind process. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. When I gave birth to the Big Mind process, the Big Mind process became a kind of teacher for me, a nupaya, a skillful means that has allowed me to keep going and clarifying because the process itself combined, like you said, with the voice dialogue work, with the Zen training, and with whatever tantric training I've learned from Charyam Trumpa Rinpoche, those three, are, I would call the, the stools, the legs of the stool, uh, have allowed that to become, a, in a way, a, a teacher and a push for me to keep going deeper. Okay. Because there's always more voices mm. uh, and more aspects of mind to discover. And each time it's like finding the last piece of a puzzle. Each time you find a new voice, it's like another piece of the puzzle. But each time it's complete, and yet you find another piece, yep. and it just makes it more complete and more um, rich. Yeah. So, so you developed this in because of your work with Hal Stone? Or how did that... Yeah, I started studying, well, we all did, at the Zen Center in Los Angeles in 1983. Mm. I think it was uh, December of 83. And I continued to work with him. Uh, he was there also? He came. Uh, mm -hmm. We were having difficulty uh, at that time. Mizumi Roshi was having some problems uh, around drinking alcohol. And he went into rehab for a month. And we brought Hal in to help us because we were lost. You know, and I was the senior monk there, and we were all lost, and I was definitely an enabler, uh, codependent, you know. I would drink with him a lot. Okay. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, he'd call me up at midnight, hey, Gempo, come, sensei, come over for a drink. I'd be over there at midnight, you know, we'd drink till four. <laughs> Insane. But... So he ran into some problems, and so we invited Hal because we realized we were a dysfunctional family on a large scale. And, and at that point, he was already a renowned psychologist. Or why? Why did you bring him? Yes. Around? Well, somebody knew him. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, it was actually a man by the name of Hogan, uh, chosen Bayes' husband. Uh, he knew of Hal and asked him to come in. So Hal was already well known. He had been the head of the Union Institute in LA and then left it and had started the voice dialogue work and married Sidra. So we would go twice a week uh, to Hal's home and we would work. There were about six of us, five, six of us. And we did that until I left in June. I left on my birthday in June. 
Uh, and then I didn't keep in touch with Hal until 2011. Oh, okay. So that was 84 of June. And then in 2011, when this happened, I needed help. And uh, of course, my Zimiroshi was long dead. So I called Hal, and he and Sidhu were very happy to work with me. So I started uh, working with particularly Hal, and then eventually both of them, uh, for a number of years. Uh, now we're just good friends. Mm -hmm. But I consider particularly Hal, but Hal and Sidhu as my kind of mentors. But Hal, you know, he's 90 years old, yeah. and I have the greatest respect. Mm -hmm. Sidhu's a little older than me, but not much. But Hal is just, I just have so much respect for him. And they both have helped me a lot through this last six, six and a half years. Yeah. To re-own re those voices? Re-own the voices mm. that I had disowned yeah. in all this traditional Zen practice. Mm. Yeah. So I think that happens in Catholicism as well a lot, you know, with the, with the rigid forms and traditions and disciplines that, that there are some voices not owned. And, That's and right. I think you're absolutely right, but I think it happens in every tradition, mm. in every way. Mm. All of us have disowned voices, yeah. obviously. In fact, one of the things that Hal and I differ on, this is interesting, um, and that is when they work, they don't ask to speak to the voice disowned. That's something I do. Because I find, and we've talked about this, I find when you say disowned, so in other words, if I'm saying, let me speak to the voice of Zen, Okay, I'm the voice of Zen, and you work on it, it's nothing. But if you say, let me speak to the voice of Zen that's not yet awakened, not yet realized, that puts a whole new twist on it, mm. and I think it's very important. Because you can feel the difference if I say, let me speak to Zen, but you're not yet awakened. Or let me speak to Buddha, but it hasn't been realized. That's very different, because you can say, okay, I'm Buddha, but, you know, yeah, then... That's interesting. Realize me yet. Mm. He hasn't awakened to me yet. That makes it very interesting. Then you bring that to fully awakened, fully embodied. So now I am Buddha fully awakened, fully embodied. I can say now I am Buddha. Before, okay, I'm Buddha? What does that mean? <laughs> so it's a very important element, especially when you bring the spiritual into it. Uh, the whole Zen thing. To go from unawakened to awakened, unrealized to realized, immature to mature. That's interesting with, with those voices. At the time you, you, um, your book got published, I was working uh, on, a, on a stages model of, um, of will. Mm -hmm. You know, how will is developing yes. through all that stages of cognitive development. Right. You know, like discipline, will, and, and like modernistic and the more floor-oriented right. will. So, and, and I used your, your model as a as a blueprint to, 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 to develop some form of big will, you know, to, mm -hmm. to, to go beyond and, and you, know, you know, like, like this concept of big mind, big mind and big heart, I, I was always sensing there's something, for, for, for myself, there's something missing, some, some active ingredient, mm -hmm. you know, so, so and I was exploring that notion and, and that kind of concept. So, but, but the thing is, and, and you said it already, there's an uh, uh, infinite number of voices. Yes. So, and how do you um, conceptualize that within yourself? Which one is relevant and, and how, how do you go to that? Right. Right. Well, you know, sometimes it's just by chance. Mm -hmm. I, I'll give you an example. So after my divorce, which happened right <laughs> immediately, um, I was talking on the phone with my former wife and she says, 
Have you investigated the one who's uh, innocent? And I said, oh yeah, we've done the innocent and vulnerable child. And then, you know, that next morning I'm meditating. I, I spend usually a couple hours in the night meditating. And that morning, I was living in Maui at the point, at that point. And um, what she said kind of struck me. I, I thought to myself, well, I've talked to the innocent and vulnerable child, but I've never asked to speak to the one who's innocent. So I decided to do that while I was sitting. And it was profound. It changed my life. So what happened was, I said, okay, so I am the one who's innocent. I'm innocent, but I'm very disowned. So imagine, say, I'm completely innocent. You can't say that. <laughs> Nobody can say that. <laughs> it's impossible. Nobody's innocent. Mm. But the moment you say, but I'm very disowned, mm. you can say, well, I'm innocent, but <laughs> he doesn't see me. He mm. doesn't. He doesn't uh, embody me. He doesn't own me mm. in any way, shape, or form. He knows he's not innocent. So then you start to work with it, and that's what I did. I sat there for a couple hours, worked with it, and I brought it from disowned and immature and disembodied to completely owned, embodied, and empowered to say, I'm completely innocent. Mm. And what that did was allow me to look over there at the other side of the triangle at Gempo, who is no way innocent. And it allowed me to acknowledge my own guilt, my own misbehavior, my own bad deeds, my own lack of innocence. It allowed me to say, wait a minute, I'm the voice within him that's completely innocent, but he is in no way innocent. Guilty as charged. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and then, flip it. Then I took the voice of the one who is not innocent, yep. the opposite. Of course, disowned. Okay, I'm not innocent, but I'm very disowned. He can't see how he's not innocent. And now, bring that to complete ownership, yep. complete embodiment. Oh, I'm not innocent at all. And that allowed me to own the one who's not innocent. Yeah. And then go to the apex and embrace both. Yeah. At the same moment, I'm completely innocent. There's a part of me that's never done anything wrong. Just innocent as can be as a newborn. And there's a part of me that is not innocent at all. Yeah. From time of conception, probably, or even before. I mean, this, this, this is one of the cornerstones of, of Christian and, and Western civilization. That every everybody... Although you may be a murderer or a rapist, that uh, that you have some divine innocence, innocence and, and spark within yourself, and you you have to honor that. Exactly. E even the the justice system has to honor that. That's right. Um, and and it's, it's it's hard to acknowledge it and to find that within himself sometimes. Well, this holds the key, I think. Logos, it's called like yeah. sometimes in, in, in philosophy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, for me, this was the key, mm -hmm. and that actually changed everything for me. It was about four years ago, I think. That you find that innocence and that... that the one mm. who's innocent. Very deeply buried mm. in me. And the one who's guilty, also deeply buried. Because we feel guilt, but we don't own it. You know, very often 
what I discovered, it was uh, right after the fall, it was, I went back to my mountain cabin in January, and I was sitting with um, guilt. Of course I was feeling guilt. And I realized I never owned my guilt. Mm. In fact, it was so disowned, I didn't even experience it. Mm. It was totally, totally denied. Mm. And then I began the process of working on my own guilt. And it wasn't until I found the one who's innocent that I could own the guilty one. Mm. That was two, three years later. Uh, that's what I meant earlier when I said, it's one thing to fall, it's another thing to own it completely. Yeah. It's not easy. Because what we try to do is we want to climb back up the mountain. And you can't. Yeah. Once you fall, the mountain is made of sheer ice now. Yeah. And you can't get an ice pick into it. Yeah. You, you just can't get back up. And so there is a desire for a while, a few years even, to climb back up the mountain. But mm. you can't. It's impossible. You can do something else. You can climb another mountain, but you can't climb that one. That one that we were on at the top. Yeah. You can't get back up. And you have to own both the one who's innocent and the one who's not innocent. And what I found too, another, I've worked a lot on the, the drama triangle, you know. Uh, and what I found, the victim, perpetrator, rescuer, I had a very difficult time since 2011 finding my perpetrator. And it wasn't, of course, until I owned the one that's innocent, the one who's not innocent, that I found my perpetrator. And what I found was my perpetrator was hiding behind, hiding behind my rescuer. Oh, okay. Interesting. So the facade, the, the aspect of the self that I was very in touch with and very own, was the rescuer, the savior, the, you know, the, the spiritual leader, the, yep. the bodhisattva, yep. right, we could say. And behind, hidden, was my perpetrator. And that's why so often we go off when we are in that position of power, that we go off because we get so identified with being a bodhisattva, being a rescuer, and we're not free of the, we're not owning the opposite, mm. the human being, and we're not able to find them, mm. our perpetrator. Yeah. We're so identified with the rescuer. Yeah. I, I know exactly what you mean. It's like I'm, I'm, um, I ended a, a 13 years relationship a year ago, and I'm still, the voices are still arguing. You know, it's still, still uh, the, the voice who is trying to prove it's innocent, and, and the realization, no, <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> well, you know. You know what I mean? This, this, it's, it's, that's it's, the victim. You know? Yes. That's where I was also stuck uh, in my relationship. I didn't see it, but I was being the victim. Mm. And I didn't see the perpetration. I, didn't, I couldn't own it because all I felt like was victimized. And that's what causes us to lash out or to rebel yes. is because mm. we feel somehow hurt and victimized and we feel entitled to lash out and to cheat or do stuff that are perpetration. But we don't see it because we feel victimized. And we have to, we, we act it out. We act it out. It's, it's sadly, but, but it's like the old Piagetian idea that you have to act out some things before you understand it, yeah. you know, and 
before you can integrate it in, in a way. But it's a it's a fascinating process. It's still those those voices and still this I don't know. It's it's uneven yeah. still. Yeah. And and well be, because I, depending on the time, you know, I can fully identify right. internally with with one shape of and perspective on things, and ten minutes later, that's right. It's it's complete. But you know, on your behalf, mm. I'll say this: you're still young. <laughs> No, it takes time. Mm. You know, one of Maizumi Roshi's most famous statements always saying, Gumbo, simply it takes time. Mm. You know, you can have immediate experiences, enlightened, awakened experiences that are spontaneous and, and life transforming, but it takes time to integrate, to fully you know, acknowledge all these things mm. and, and all these various aspects of mind. And You know, I, I was meeting with Yamada Roshi. Yamada is my Dharma uncle. He's Maizumi Roshi's Dharma brother. And he's a great, great Zen master. Also a successor of Yasutani Roshi. And I had very good opportunities to meet with him. And one time, I was in 1981, and we were... Uh, He invited me to do this uh, three-day or two-day, whatever it was, uh, session or workshop with all his roshis. And I, you know, so of course I, I went, you know, and I got to participate. And when it was over, I'm not sure of the year, could have been 81, could have been 87. But the point was this, that afterwards uh, he invited me to sit down and have a scotch with him and smoke a cigar. <laughs> So we're in this living room, just the two of us, and he was about 80 at that point. It was a year or so before he died, so I'd have to check to see the exact right yep. years. But he said to me, you know, Sensei, I was not completely free until I turned 70. And I said, what do you mean, Roshi? He said, I still cared what other people said and thought about me. And at 70, I dropped it. Mm -hmm. He said, I don't believe you can do it much earlier. And I felt I took that on because it wasn't until, in seven, until I turned 70 that I felt completely free. And it was the same thing. Mm -hmm. You still care somehow what other people say and think about you. Now, this fall has helped me immensely. But I know that it also took time and age. This, this was a, a thing, a question that I wanted to ask you now, where you are now in, in your life. How much in, in your personal development, how much is due to Zen tradition and how much is due to the normal tries and tribulations you have to go through life yeah I, you know I, it's say, like yeah i would say it's a good question but there's no answer because it's like a, a weave how uh, they're woven together uh, i don't think you can separate it it's both it's definitely both and and i don't see them as two my zen is my life and my life is zen and the trials and tribulations the rises and falls mm. like i talk about in in the new book you know spitting out the bones uh The falls may be more important than the rises, the successes. Yeah. You know, we have a saying, uh, the first one I heard say this expression was Kodosawaki Roshi, who was also a great Roshi, Japanese Roshi. And he said, to win is to fail. To fail is to truly win. Mm -hmm. When we are successful, What's being successful? Our ego. Mm. 
we feel success, we feel great, we feel wonderful, all this. But when we lose, when we fail completely, when we lose it all, then we win. And it's true. I'm sorry to say it's true. Yes. We have to fail, we have to lose completely to really find happiness and peace. We can't do it by just building up the ego and being successful, climbing the mountain. We have to fall off the mountain. That's I mean, this is, uh, this is common sense, you know, you, yeah. can, you can be moral, you can be ethical if, if, every, if, if you have a blast and if you have a good time, but can you still be a good person if everything, <laughs> if everything falls, apart. Fall, falls apart? I mean, like, this is the ultimate test. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And so, to answer your question, I would say they're, they're completely uh, integrated. You have to have the rises and falls and the trials and tribulations, as you said, in life together with the going in. Because mm. I don't think you can just have trials and tribulations without going in. You know, way back in 71, I read a book by Abraham Maslow. And in that book, it was about self-actualizing individuals. You probably read it. And he states there in that book that the one common factor, I still remember this 46 years later, The one common factor with every one of the people he uh, studied was they all spent an hour alone every day. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Doing nothing. Maybe taking a walk, mostly sitting, maybe by a fireplace, sitting by the, the river, sitting by a stream, you know, something in a meadow. Mm -hmm. And I really totally agree with that. I try to spend a couple hours every day, you know. Mostly at night, because that's the easiest time. You know, like this morning I got up at five. We went to bed at two, but got up at five and meditated till seven. You know, to spend a couple hours a day completely alone, not doing anything, yeah. not, not reading, not doing anything, just being. And I think it's so important. So I think that those two are important, the trials and tribulations of life and the introspection, the, the time alone. And, and So what, but you said, like, this, this thing that... It's still important to us what other people think about us. You, yes. Because you would, you would presume yes. that this is something which are the traditions for to get rid of. Yes. So, but obviously that's, it's not that easy. No, it's not. No. I mean, when I heard that from Yamada Roshi, I was totally impressed. You know, I, I met with another great teacher. It was Kota Sawaki's, I think, first successor, Uchiyama Roshi. And um, I had the good fortune to meet with him before he died, also. And Maizumi Roshi was present. There were a number of Zen teachers from Europe and America there. And we were having tea with him. And I'll never forget this. He was in his 80s at this point, And he said, you know, at some point, my Dharma brothers threw me out of the lineage. And then... Some years later, the Soto school threw me out of the Soto school for not teaching Soto Zen the way they want us to teach it. Now, the Buddhist world has thrown me out of Buddhism because I am busy with the ecumenical and the Christians and so forth. And he says, I've lost everything. And it was his teacher who said, you have to lose everything. He said, now I've lost everything. With the exception, he tore open his kimono. This is all I have left. <laughs> <laughs> And I loved it. 
it was beautiful. It just tore open his kimono. This is all I have left. Just this. Is that so what you profound. mean with, with spitting yeah. out the bones? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's all that's left. Yeah. Like the essence. Yeah, the essence. Mm. Whatever you want to call it, the mm. core, the mm. essence. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Interesting. But it's not easy. <laughs> no, no, certainly not. not. No. no, to lose everything, to fail so completely. No, nobody wants that because nobody our society wants. is like we, we all want to accumulate knowledge and wealth and status and, yeah. you know, it's Position. like. You know, yes. Yeah, even spiritually. Yes. You know, not even, especially spiritually. I think it's, it's gotten worse and worse. We, in the spiritual endeavors, now I don't call it the stink of Zen anymore, I call it the stink of spirituality because we're full of it. Wherever you turn, there's the stink of spirituality, and we're all teachers of meditation, we're all teachers of mindfulness, we're all teachers of spirituality. And even some that, I mean, I just saw yesterday, Dennis pointed out to me somebody saying she teaches big mind. And I never even met her. And if I have, I don't remember, you know? And she's a teacher of big mind, yeah. you know? I mean, I can't believe people, they read a book or they've watched a video, now they're teaching it. And I know how long I've worked on it, since 1983 and since 1971, yeah. you know, and, and Gestalt therapy since 69. And it takes, it looks easy to like uh, facilitate big mind, but actually it's a, it's a skill. Sure. And, you know, there's something to it. It makes look easy when you're good at it, but everybody just thinks they can go out and teach it. Yeah, it's, it's the same with NLP, like those. Yeah, those, yeah. Yes. same. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And, and you can get uh, entangled to it. I, I mean, for me, for example, writing yeah. is a very uh, important process of growth because, yes. I, because I can formulate arguments and, and try to re-own stuff within myself. But I, have, I, I always have to remind me that, that it's like a um, crazy endeavor to write and to, to try to um, build a reputation or something, you know, because it's, it's stupid. It's, it, it's, it's, you know, it's like, okay, you, you try to do it, but, but I, I can't identify with that, you know, and, and, and but there's some part wants to. Oh, sure. So, well, but, you know. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about rising or climbing the mountain mm. again. There's a part of us that wants to be successful, wants to be famous, wants to succeed, wants to do well. Of course, I mean, it's natural. Yeah. But again, for me, it's really the losses, the falls, and, and the failures that teach us the most. You sure. know, I, I remember way back. Um, I realized, I think it was 72 or 73, that having a, an opening, an awakening, is rather easy, but it's not so easy to lose it. Whatever it is that we're holding on to, whatever the concept or the, uh, the, um, the new understanding might be, to lose that and to see that all understanding is just concepts and all of it is not worth shit, mm. you know, to let it all go. That's hard. Mm. It's hard to let it all go, to lose it all. Mm. It's rather easy to accumulate knowledge, information, yeah. you know, to study and become more informative and more, you know. But the other pet peeve I have is everybody's a teacher these days. There's such a difference between teaching and sharing. 
That's true. Mm-hmm. And being with somebody and teaching. Like I, I, I Everybody's a coach nowadays. Everybody's a coach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody's a teacher. And once you become kind of, uh, you use the word um, allergic mm-hmm. to that, you hear it all the time. That's true. Yeah. That teaching voice. But what I, what I find very interesting is that you can't unsee some things, you know, especially if you have like a like an early enlightenment or some some form of realization. It it's it's it sticks with you, and you can't you can't get rid of it. You you can try, <laughs> but it's it's it stays there because you, you can't close it's it. Embedded. <laughs> yeah, some, somehow it's part of your yeah. basic. Well, and and we don't want to get rid of anything. We want to let go of the attachment mm. to it. That, that's more the point. Yes. Otherwise, we dis, we divorce it, we disown it. Mm. That's what happened to me. Like in 2011, particularly this April, uh, when I was working with Hal, I know what I did was not only did I disown, I mean divorce, but disown the 81st Patriarch, but I disowned my power. And I saw the power was a problem. I made it into a problem because it got me into so much trouble having all this power. And it took me a long time to re-own the power in a healthy way. In other words, coming from the apex where it's integrated with being powerless. Because I think those two are very important. I think to have real power and not acknowledge that we're powerless at the very same moment is very dangerous. Yes. Yeah, it's the same thing. So what it took was the fall of 2011 for me to see I was totally powerless. Yes. I knew it was coming. It was predicted a year ahead. An astrologer. astrologer, Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. He he predicted, he said to me, in about a year, January of 2011, you're going to have a great fall. This was 2010, January. mm -hmm. So I knew it was coming, but I still couldn't conceive of it. But I knew it was coming. But it was like, who would have known? And yet, I kept saying in many of my talks at the Zen Center in Salt Lake, I would say, if anybody is going to destroy this center, it's going to be me, not you. I will, yeah. not you. And I knew what I was doing. I wasn't unconscious. And I knew there was a chance of destroying the whole thing. And yet, I still continued to act that way. And that was a power trip. But I had to accept that I also was totally powerless, <laughs> you know, in this. You know, a voice that I've discovered recently is very, it's an incredible voice, if you think about it. And that is the unconscious great architect. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Think about it. The ar- architect that's unconscious. Mm-hmm. The one who is creating and designing your whole life, but he's unconscious yeah. within you. Not out there. Not God, the creator. No, 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 I I completely understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then bring that from completely unawakened and disowned to completely awakened, still unconscious, but that you take full responsibility for being the architect of your entire life from beginningless beginning to this moment, endless time. That's a Jungian idea, you know. He said, like, we all... He he um, frames it in, in different words. He said, we... Um, we all inhabit an archetype, but we mostly don't know what it is, and we should know because we don't want to find ourselves in, in, in a tragedy. You know. Uh-huh. So. Well, you know, I didn't really study Jung. Hmm. I, I read one book on hmm. him in '71, so I didn't really study Jung. But you know, he's fascinating. You know, 
I was with Hal the day he received the Red Book. He got in and he opened it up and showed me mm. what a book. Mm. I don't have a copy, but amazing book. Yeah. You know. No, it's, I, I, I had this realization that I mean we, we can't the uh, we can't control um, the behaviors of other people, right. but the thing is. 99% of the time we can't even control our own behavior and <laughs> right. our own emotions and 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 things which are going on in your in our head it's like what 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 can we control right 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 it's you know no, you're and, right. and so so we we're drifting from 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 one moment to, to another and we we ent entertain the hallucinations that we are in control <laughs> but we are not of course and 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 to i don't i i i don't feel that realization like every time but I can get to that point mm -hmm. you know where I can feel that right. and because because we are, we are so complex in our mind and our right. it's fascinating yeah. but imagine if you take the triangle of completely owning mm. the great architect the creator of this whole life and then go to its opposite and, and start to play with Okay, so who am I? I'm disowned. I'm the opposite of the architect, mm -hmm. the one who's designed this entire life. And then you start to play with the whole, what you're talking about, the whole chaos, the whole thing that you're powerless and you have no control and the whole yes. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's destiny and all that. It's just, and you own those two because what Buddha said, which is, I mean, but it was quite profound, obviously. <laughs> what he said was both the idea that we have uh, will, or you know, we're able to to choose uh, choice, free choice, or everything's determined. Humanism, both are incorrect, incomplete concepts, which is very true. Yeah. They're they're not that they're wrong; they're incomplete. We have both free freedom of choice, and we have none, and both are true. That's true. And then from the apex, we can embrace them. So we're both the architect, meaning that we're totally responsible for our life. Nobody's doing it to me. I'm doing it all to myself. I've designed every aspect, every moment, and it's total chaos. Yeah. And the mind can't grasp that, those two opposites. Yeah. But they're true. Yeah. Are you familiar with that famous movie, The Matrix? Yes. Uh, with all three parts? Be because that, that, that encapsulates the very idea you have you have the, the ar yeah. architect yeah. who is like the creator of the yeah. whole matrix imagine it as a, as a mental game yeah. anyway yeah. and you have the archetypal hero who, who um, has basically to die right. and uh, to, to be born again in order to um, recreate the whole matrix thing so it's, it's, it's all happening at the same time control and from the perspective of, of Neo, uh, but <coughs> of course there's the architect who is like right. constructing the whole thing, but it's the same person in a way. Right. Yeah, yeah. I know one of the, uh, the um, directors, uh, Larry. Yes. Uh, yeah. Oh, you know him? Yeah. Her. Oh, I, I, now her. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I met him, her, when it was still him. Mm. <laughs> But in transition, mm. yeah, back through integral. Uh, Larry or, or Lana? Larry, Larry. L uh, which is now Lana, the, yes. the, the woman with yes. the red hair. Yes, mm. Mm. Lana, mm. yeah. Uh, I met her through Kent. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm. When I, I did, um, you know, I, I did 
for the uh, integral spiritual community, I did the first workshop. Did, we did spend the whole day on Big Mind. It was a very, very interesting. Uh, Big Mind. Would you would you care to go briefly into Big Mind and Big Heart for for our listeners? Like just like the basic idea and how re how it relates to to enlightenment, sure. so, so to speak. No, I'm happy to. Uh, so let me say this about Big Mind. Uh, Big Mind has evolved, okay? So what initially was Big Mind in 99 is not Big Mind anymore. Okay? okay. In fact, I call it more Big Heart or Big Mind, Big Heart. In fact, you know, as we move to Boulder, which we're, we're going to be doing in mid-August, I think I'm going to establish a community there called possibly Big Heart Zen Community. Uh, because to me, the apex of Big Mind is Big Heart, and the transcendent, the right side of the triangle, is Big Mind. So the way Big Mind was started was that having done voice dialogue back in, in 83, I was experimenting a lot during retreats working with people on disowned aspects of themselves. Particularly what seemed to be very important was relationship to the parents and, and so on. And to anger, to fear, and so on. At one point in June of 99, I was working with a group about, I think it was about 60 or 80 people in Salt Lake. And I asked, at that point I was still working with individuals, but in the group. So I, I didn't address the whole group, I addressed individuals. In okay. Uh, because voice dialogue is always done one-on-one. -on -one. But I started doing it in a group, but still one-on-one. -on -one. So I called out this one person and I said, uh, can I speak to Big Mind, please? And I am Big Mind, he said. And then I started asking testing questions like you would for Moo, uh, the koan, first koan. I said, well, how big are you? And he looks in and says, I don't have a size. I'm limitless. I said, well, what color are you? Wow, well, I'm colored. I have no color. I'm all colors. I said, well, when did you begin? I have no beginning, no birth. I'm unborn. Mm -hmm. I said, so when do you die? He said, well, I'm undying. And I realized I had stumbled onto something. It still brings emotion to me. It was so powerful. He was just a young man right out of college. And I took a walk with my wife then that day, and I said, I've stumbled onto something. This is mind-blowing. I've been working with students since the 70s. This is now 1999. Mm. And this kid was clearer than just about anybody in that voice. I said, I've got I've to work on this. I've got to find a name for it. So I came up with the name Big Mind. That's the voice. And uh, the whole point was that if you ask to speak to any aspect, all aspects are there already. So from the most uh, crazy, insane, poor, wretched person on earth, meanest, worst person on earth, to the greatest, to Jesus Christ, to Buddha, they're all within. That I knew. 
so but I'm sorry, but this is like a stroke of genius. How did you came up with, to, with the idea that you can a, a, a address this kind of voice? It just came. Okay. It was like a call and just comes. Mm. It just came. I, it wasn't, there wasn't any thinking behind it mm. I mean, that I'm aware of. It was just... That there was that exact moment? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. That exact moment. Okay. And I said, This, this is revolutionary, that you can just ask politely to speak to any voice, speak to Buddha, speak to your cancer cells, speak to big mind, speak to Jesus Christ, speak to God. And by saying it nicely, so you don't run into resistance or, or uh, a kind of taking a position no, <laughs> you know, you're saying it politely, may I, may I speak to Buddha, mm. may I speak to Big Mind, may I speak to God. And the person says, okay, and then you start asking questions. Now, later I say, unrealized, now realize, unawakened to awaken. But at that point, it was just to speak to that voice, and he turned his own light inward. Because that's what the point is in Zen, is to turn your own light inward in your Zazen, in your meditation, yeah. and illuminate the self. So he turned his own light inward, and he was looking, and I saw him doing it. I could witness that he was doing that. He was turning his light inward into the mind, and when you do that, there's no mind. <laughs> it, it's gone, mm. and you're one with the universe. And I knew it was possible because of my experience back in 71. But it took me from 71 to 99 to realize how simple it was mm. and how uh, how uh, available that yep. it, it can be. And so then the first period was, it was like I had been saying in, in a number of my talks for about nine months to a year before the big mind, before June of 99, I felt pregnant. I said, something is happening. Yeah. in me. I feel like I'm growing a baby in my womb yeah. and I don't know what's happening. I kept saying I feel pregnant and it really I felt pregnant and then that June this happened. Mm. It was like giving birth but it was like the baby crowned and all I could see was the top of the head. I couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl, what mm. shape, what size. I didn't know anything about it and then it took about three months to deliver that it just kind of came out yeah. and took on a, a form that I could tell male, female, you know, yeah. heavy, light, you know, all the size and all that shape. But it took about three months, from June until I was here in Europe doing a bunch of uh, sessions, retreats, all over in Holland and in France and England, all over Poland, Germany. And it started to take real form mm. and became what we now call Big Mind. Mm. It's, so it's, sorry, it's, it's interesting right. because I've read, I, I think it was a, um, a commentator of a Hindu book or something, that if you, I, I don't know if I find the correct words, but he was comparing um, attaining this Samadhi Nivulkapa um, to a trick you do. Uh -huh. You know, you, you, you try to climb up the mountain and uh, Maybe you reach that point, but if you're there, you 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 realize it's only a, a change of of, of, of perspective, in, in in a way. Yeah. So, but you have to be there to understand that it's just a mental trick in yeah. a way. Right. 
go on, but but I but I that, but that's what it is. Mm. It's just a change of perspective. You know, it, it's almost like if you've got a room full of people and everybody is looking at the lecturer when teaching, and they all have a certain perspective uh, of the room, and each perspective is different, you know, slightly, but they all have one perspective. And then you ask them to come sit up here and look out, mm -hmm. and they have a completely different perspective of the same room. And that's what it's like. It's like you just shift perspective. Now, you can say that all the perspectives are correct. They're all true. That's true for that person, that perspective. But you can say they're all incomplete. And some of them are 180 degrees different. And that's what the shift is. It's a 180 degree shift. And yet, it's the same room, same reality yeah. we're looking at, but from a different, completely different perspective. And every perspective is both true and at the same time incomplete. Yeah. It's not that they're wrong. They're true, but they're incomplete. Yeah. No one perspective is complete. And you can't get all perspectives. It's impossible because Every time you get a new perspective, there's many more. Lots of it. So no perspective ever is going to be a complete perspective. Mm. It'll always be incomplete. Mm. And it's always just a perspective. That's true. But God had to create <laughs> incomplete perspective because it was the only thing he couldn't do. <laughs> no, just a joke. But yeah, go, that's go. very good. Well, it's like the other jokes, since we're into jokes right now. I love the one where the guru is sitting on the mountain and this disciple is on the other side of the river. Mm. And the disciple yells up to the great guru. He says, how do I get to the other shore? And the guru yells back, you're already there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So please, please go on. How, how did Big well, Mind... Well, then, then at that point... For me, the trick was that there was a certain sequence of voices that I felt like they were a tumbler lock. Mm. And if you got all the sequences right, then it opened the lock. So there was a sequence of, of speaking to the controller and then the protector and then fear, oh. and, mm -hmm. see, and then resistance and all these voices. And then at some point I say, okay, now let me speak to the controller and the protector. Do I have permission to speak to Big Mind? Now I just go directly to go. Mm. S. Mm. You know, uh, every combination works. Mm. But at that time, there was a certain sequence of combinations that, and that's what I wrote about in the book. Yeah. You know? But that's all. That's why I say is Big Mind today is not what Big Mind was, even when I wrote Big Mind Big Heart. So now I find we don't have to go through all that. I can just ask anybody off the street. Mm. You know, I don't even have to ask. Mm. Just do it. Mm. You know, and so it evolved. Now the beginning. You mean the process? The evolved. process okay. evolved. Mm -hmm. The process evolved. Big mind itself evolved, and the process evolved. Okay. At that point in time, the way I was trained in Zen, big mind and big heart were one word. They're both dai shin in Japanese. Dai means great or big. And shin means heart, mind. Mm -hmm. So I didn't make a distinction at that point between big mind and big heart. But about five years into it, maybe 2005, 2004, something like that, I realized I needed to separate them or it was actually beneficial to separate them. 
that big mind, because if you think about it, big mind is the transcendent, and it doesn't have a quality of love or compassion. It's mm. just emptiness. Mm. It's just shunyata, shunyata. It's just complete emptiness. There's no self. There's no nothing. There's no anything. Mm. Okay. There's no me. There's no you. There's nothing. When you say, let me speak to big heart, all of a sudden comes compassion, warmth, love, care, yep. all that. And so I decided that it wasn't good to keep it as one word, mm. big mind. And that's when I came up with, there's big mind and big heart. And then I realized big heart was the apex. And the way that came about was kind of interesting, the apex. So about 2006 at Integral in, in Boulder, in uh, in Denver, somewhere between Boulder and Denver. We were doing some work uh, in this workshop that I was telling you about with the spiritual teachers, and I was working with a uh, Tibetan teacher, uh, a Western Tibetan teacher. And he said, yeah, oh, I'm, I'm stuck. I, I hear all these people talking about uh, self, and there's no self. Mm. What are they talking about? There's no self. It doesn't exist. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's do some work here. And I said, okay, sit down in the chair. I said, who am I speaking to? You're speaking to a big mind. You're speaking to the whole. You're speaking to the universe. You're speaking to Buddha nature. You're speaking to Sujinata. Okay. You were saying something to me. You were saying that the self doesn't exist. No, the self doesn't exist. It's just... You know, a, a, an illusion. There's no self. It doesn't exist. It's it's just a phenomenon that we've created. It doesn't exist. I said, okay. And he was really angry with this idea of the self. I said, okay. Now, would you do me a favor? And this is the first time I did. Would you go over here and sit in that chair where this no self, this, mm. this self that doesn't exist, is sitting? Yeah. You're looking right at it. So he goes and he sits down. And I said, who are you? I'm the self. And he was furious. <laughs> he was just enraged at this other voice that was saying he doesn't exist. Mm. That he's, he's a non-entity. He's an illusion. Mm. I exist and I'm here. And he's denied me and ignored me mm. and all that. I got a phone call from his wife saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, that night. Mm. Because she got her husband back. Mm. All of a sudden... There was the self again, yeah. kind of like what Hal did to me, you know, yeah. years later. No. Yeah, years later. Then I said, okay, and this was the first time I'd come up with the apex, and it was because I had been given a teaching by Trumpa Rinpoche to embody all the extremes, all opposites. Yeah. So I said, okay, now you're the opposite of the snow self, you're the self. Let me speak to this one standing above these two. I didn't know about the apex mm. yet. I hadn't discovered that yet. But I just said, the one that embraces these two. Yeah. And he stood up there, and he just started laughing and crying. I mean, he was just crying and laughing uncontrollably. He says, how silly, how stupid of me to make this one non-existent. Mm. They're both important. Yeah both important and that's when it took me another year to come up with the triangle and the apex first I just had people visualize standing above okay. these two opposites mm. and, and uh, realize that we embody the two extremes and that was Trumpa 
giving me this teaching to embrace opposites. The only way to go is up. Mm -hmm. If you embrace the opposite, it kind of pushes you to the apex. Yeah. You have to, because otherwise they stay opposite yeah. and extreme. Yeah. But this pushed me right to the apex, and that's how I came up with that. Mm -hmm. So it's evolved, and I call that big heart, I call it the integrated free functioning human being, I call it sometimes our, our true and genuine mm -hmm. self, the aware self, the mature self, I have a lot of names for that one, but basically it's the apex. Okay, okay, so... The one who integrates. Okay, so, so you said that, let me just wrap my head, head around it, that Originally, big mind and big heart were one thing. Yeah. And then it, you separated it. Yes. And now you found found a synthesis. Or synthesis. Synth yeah. for, for that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, and how, how 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 does it work out? How 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 does it work with people when you when you work? Well, now most all the time I do a full triangle with people. Mm -hmm because I feel there's a little bit of danger leaving them just in the transcendent. Mm. So I'm almost always, if I say, let's speak to a, a particular voice. Like, mm. uh, I did this with, with someone not too long ago. I said, let me speak to the Bodhisattva, mm. unawakened, and then brought the Bodhisattva to awakening. Mm. And I said, okay, now let me speak to the opposite. Okay, wait, wait a minute. I am the Bodhisattva. Mm. What's the opposite? I said, well, let's just speak to your opposite. Let's find out who it is. It's disowned. It's mm. very disowned. Okay, well, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I'm not quite ready to go there. Um, but that, sorry, but that, um, I, I don't know if, if, if that was Osho, but he said, like, the perfect human being is the combination of Buddha and Alexis Sorbas. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You, you know who is Alexis no, Sorbas? This no. is a Greek. Yeah. You know who? Oh, oh, oh. Uh, uh, Sorbas the Greek. Sorbas is the Greek. Sorbas the Greek. Yes, Sorbas the Greek. So, so the guy who struggles in right, life and, right. and who is all this, this, <laughs> this things and who is basically the opposite of, 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 of the Buddha. But somehow you have to bring those two opposites together. Right, that's right. Mm -hmm. But you know, you, you helped me a lot when you said that because I was trying to think of Osho's name. All I could think of was Bhagwan last mm -hmm. I was talking to Dennis down here in, in, the, in the town. And he said, I don't know Bhagwan. Mm -hmm. I said, Bhagwan. I said, he's got another name. You probably know him by that. But I couldn't think of his other name. He yeah. just said Osho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I loved Osho. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to me, the greatest spiritual teacher of the 20th century was Chogun Trumpa Rinpoche. Yeah. But one of the great leaders, uh, at least writers and people that influenced me was Bhagwan. Uh-huh, okay. Osho. Mm. I, I read his books profusely. I mm. never met him, mm. but I loved his writing, his talking. Yeah. Yeah. Very clear. Mm. Yeah. But Chogun Trumpa to me was the clearest, you know, I mentioned we're moving to Boulder, I feel that Trump is behind that move. Okay. I feel somehow he's aiding or assisting this move mm -hmm. and bringing me to Boulder uh, because my uh, fiance uh, is going to go get a graduate degree in Buddhist psychology there. Uh, mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, a month ago, she says, I want to move to Boulder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we were settled in LA, and uh, not in LA, but Long Beach. 
California, so we're moving to Boulder. Boulder is still a good place. It's for a great place. Yes. Yeah, I think. Uh, mm. Ask me in three years. Okay. <laughs> okay. But because I know like the, the Integral Center and Ken Wilber um, and, and he, he, Trumpa. Yeah, he. I don't know if he still lives there, but he lives no, there. No, he lives in Denver. Yes. And he has a house there. Yes. Yeah, but he lives in Denver. But it's only a half hour, 40 minutes away. But I know a lot of spiritual hipsters and young folks yeah. are based in Boulder now. Yeah. And mm -hmm. It's really the, the mecca of spirituality mm. in America. And I'm being put down <laughs> right in the middle like a shark <laughs> in a small pool. Mm. <laughs> how big is Boulder anyhow? Not that big. Mm. I don't remember how big, but not that big. I mean, we can ask Siri, but it's not that big. Mm. It's not that big. I mean, I've like like I've Palma big or is it small? It's like a wh wh why don't we ask Siri? I don't remember. It's small. Mm, okay, it's, it's relatively small. Um, I don't know how. I don't. I can't say how big Palma is because I haven't really seen it much. I would say um, it's it's smaller than Copenhagen. For okay, sure, mm -hmm. for sure. I don't know what to compare it with. And I don't know, what, but it's small. Okay. I mean, everybody knows everybody. Everybody that I've contacted so far yeah. has known somebody else that okay. I know or me. Okay. Mostly, you know, I, the, the one who's helping me with finding a, a house to live, she's done some workshops with me. The one who is in charge of, uh, of admissions has done workshops with Ken and I. You yeah. know, I mean, everybody seems to know everybody. There. Mm. It's a small world. Okay. It's a it's a very big Buddhist world, but it's mm. a small world. Okay. Yeah. So so again, what what is now the the relationship between big mind, big heart, and and that state of enlightenment you were talking about with the with the Inca? Um, okay. Well, we could probably stretch it. Mm. <laughs> so what? Stretch it a little bit. Okay. I don't mm. know if they exactly equate, but here's what I would say. Mm. Something like this. I would say that the experience of big mind, a true experience of mm. big mind, not just a glimpse, not just a state experience, mm. but to really have a, a Daiken show. Mm. It can, it's possible. I've had a few people have a, a great opening using big mind. But that right side of the triangle, the true transcendent, dropped off body mind, mm. great death experience, that experience would be equivalent to enlightenment. Okay. Okay. That's big mind. That's a complete embodiment. Yeah, complete embodiment. Not mm. just a glimpse, which pe anybody can have mm. doing big mind. Mm. They can have a glimpse, but to really embody that. Mm. And there's a difference, as you know, between a glimpse and embodiment. Mm. It can take 20, 30 years mm. to embody a glimpse. Yeah. Okay, that would be the right side of the triangle. Mm. Then, to get to the apex, in my opinion, we have to come back and pick up the self. Mm. we left behind. Mm. So we go, it's like Chinese checkers, you go from here to here, mm. experience the complete transcendent, and then we got to go back and pick up the self, the personal self that we left behind, mm. okay, pick up that self, and then go to the apex. So that the apex embodies both the Buddha and the personal self, the okay. transcendent and the personal self. And then to the apex. When now that again is a process mm. because I feel that I started that process in '94. Mm. You and yourself? Yeah. Or? Okay. Mm -hmm. I started the process mm. of the apex in '94. Mm. Otherwise, I couldn't have taught the mm. apex or come up with it. 
But 2011 was a big step in starting, beginning to own the personal self. Mm. I had started in 94, and I said that. I'm starting to own the personal self. Mm. I felt like I had come on, on the first fall mm. back into the self and, and started the process of integrating the personal self. Mm. But it wasn't until 2011 mm. that the process really went into overdrive. Mm. <laughs> And it's taken me now, whatever that is, six and a half years, mm. to what I would call embody the apex, mm. to come from the apex most of the time. Mm. I still, I, I still think it's it's so fascinating when you when you think about it. I mean, you you have this drive, you um, you are on a quest, you know, and you 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 have this discipline and and and. and But you also have this this disowned self, and then then because of your intentions, you know, the the inner architect, um, to say it in, in this word, creates all this suffering and drama, which is basically necessary to to move on. Absolutely. And this is like a paradoxical thought because you're always working to reduce suffering, but but you you have to paradoxically to create suffering. To, 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 to develop and and with our moral culture and Protestantism and and gurus have to be perfect you know it's it's it's, it's so mind-boggling you know how how this has to work at some point in order to justify everything you know <laughs> you, you know what I mean and 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 this is this is I, I think it's very interesting You know what I'm saying? Oh, I it's like, do. I do know what you're saying. So I mean, you you went through that, but you know, we we all because we all want to to reduce suffering, right? But we, well, you can't. I mean, you can reduce it, but you always create suffering. If you're breathing, you're creating suffering. Exactly. Mm. You know, you can go sit alone in the in the desert, and your family's going to miss mm. you. Your your mother's going to miss you. Somebody's mm. going to suffer because mm. you're going sitting alone in the desert. Mm. You know. Which, which doesn't mean uh, like a blank check for for creating no. bad, uh, for for being immoral, but 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 to to integrate those two things, we we, we talked about innocence and and right. and, and the, the other pole of that, the opposite. Yeah. And I think this is um, in the whole discussion about what what development and 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 growth is all about. Yeah. I think this is important to 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 know that kind of. Well, I think you're putting your finger right on the on the mark here. Mm. Yeah, it, it's a process that we have to go through. Mm. You know, it was a third patriarch, Chinese patriarch, that said the perfect way is not difficult if we can avoid picking and choosing. Mm. But he didn't say it was easy. Mm. He said it's not difficult. Mm. And there's a difference, I think, between the perfect way is easy. Mm. To get to the perfect way is not easy. It's just what we see, the perfect way is not difficult. Yeah. But, We're so totally attached to picking and choosing, yeah. wanting success over failure, wanting this over that, wanting yeah. to be a great person over this. We want to climb the mountain over falling off the mountain. Mm. You know, we're always picking and choosing, likes and dislikes, constantly. Mm. So now you're on a tour in Europe, and I for, am. for for much longer. Well, you know, I'm living. I've been living kind of in Copenhagen as mm. well as California uh, with my fiance, and so. I have another month mm. here, and then I'm going back to California, mm. and she's going to join me a week or two later because she's got a 
come over for the. Um, she has to stay behind mm. for the green card, not the green card, but the uh, visa. She's uh, European or? Yeah, she's uh, Danish. Ah, okay. Ah, she. Ah, therefore, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Actually, she's um, a psych psychotherapist. Yes. In the tradition we were talking about psychosynthesis. Okay. We, you mentioned synthesis and antithesis and. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's her training mm. and also a spiritual teacher. And so, then we're going to move in August to Boulder. Okay. Yeah. So and, and you're um, you're now here and and you go to from here you, you stay I here for I a go couple of days I longer. I go over here till mon uh, Monday. I, mm -hmm. I have a workshop. I have a workshop this. Uh, I don't know when it's starting, Friday or Saturday mm -hmm. morning, but I think it starts Friday. Mm -hmm. uh, got to ask Dennis. Mm -hmm. But uh, I got a workshop. Here. Mm -hmm. uh, I think about I don't know. 30, 40 people will be attending. Nice. Mm -hmm. And then I go on Monday back to Copenhagen. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, Roshi, yeah. your book, yeah. Spitting Out the Bones, is available now? Yeah, it's been available. And um, I would say, you know, that was a difficult book for me to mm. write. Um, I labored on it six years. Big mm. mind, big heart, ten days. Mm. <laughs> This book, six years. Mm. Um, but it was a book that I had to write. Mm. It was, uh, it was um, I was being compelled by my insides yeah. to get this out yeah. and to reflect. And it was, it was a process for mm. me. And it came from, uh, the beginning was a lot of blogs that I did, and then I put it together and, and wrote it into a book, and then kept writing. Like I said, the last chapter was actually when I moved into Long Beach mm. last uh, July, a mm. year ago. And it was a full circle. Mm. Yeah. Well, From 71, it was exactly 45 years to when I moved back, mm. complete circle. Aroshi, thank you very much that you took the time for this. Oh, you're welcome. It's very enjoyable interview. Yeah, uh, I really appreciate. Mm. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, yeah, very much. Thank you. Yeah. So good luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you. And I got. I think we got it. Okay. <laughs> I think you got a lot. <laughs> That's true. Oh, we we did.